0: Folks, before we jump into today's highlights, I just have to ask you, do you want to put 50 years of baseball history in your pocket? I know what you're thinking, it's not going to fit, but it really will because it's all in audio format. These are lost pieces of baseball history told to you from baseball cathedrals. They're, They're told to you by icons of the game from Red Barber, Ernie Howell, to Harry Carey. I get goosebumps personally listening to these games and even thinking about the interviews and what these players are gonna share with me. I know what you're thinking, is this AI? Are there bots? Is there some magic potion here that are making these things appear? And I'm telling you, they're not. These games are real. They were done by real people at that specific moment in time. All the iconic moments, the interviews, none of it's reproduced, none of it's AI. It's all real, but done again by real people. If you want to check them out, uh, there's a free intro offer. Jump on over to VintageBaseballReflections.com. And there's over 2,500 audio clips and games for you to put in your pocket, take on walks with you, hang around the fireplace and listen, put them on the porch, invite some friends over. However you want to listen, you're going to be able to listen in these amazing moments in baseball history. Use this coupon this day for a special gift at the checkout. Hi folks, thanks for joining me today on season three, episode five of the Daily Rewind. Today we are covering August 26th through September 1st. We're gonna be talking about Tom Yockey, the first televised game, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Jeff Bagwell, and many others on the Daily Rewind. My name's Tom Hannon and I am your host. If you love the history of the game and relate your stories in life to baseball, And if you tend to get goosebumps when Ray Kinsella asks his dad to play catch, you are in the right place. This podcast is part of ThisDayInBaseball.com. If you love more than just a box score, check out our website, ThisDayInBaseball.com. We have over 50,000 pages of events, stories, and things that have happened at a moment in time in baseball history. And it's growing every single day. So check out ThisDayInBaseball.com. Now to start you off like we always do, we got a little trivia for you. Who was the first black player in Major League Baseball history? In what year did he debut? We'll have the answer for you at the end of the show. On August 26, 1939, at Brooklyn's Ebbets Field, NBC televises the first Major League game in history on an experimental station, W2XBS covering a double-header split in which the Reds win the first game 5-2 and the Dodgers take the nightcap 6-1. The network employs two cameras, one behind home plate, showing a wide view of the field and the other on the third baseline to capture the plays at first base. Legendary announcer and Hall of Famer Red Barber broadcasts the game. Ironically, Between the two games, a ceremony is held to honor Alexander Cartwright with a Hawaiian-themed celebration to mark the centennial anniversary of baseball. Now, a little bit about the programming. At the time, regular programming did not yet exist, and very few people owned television sets. In fact, there were only about 400 in the New York area. It wasn't until 1946 did regular network broadcasting actually catch on in the United States. And only in the mid 1950s did television sets become more common in the American household. Just 3,000 people were able to enjoy the Reds-Dodgers game in 1939 from their home, while last year's World Series alone attracted over 14 million viewers. As for the games, I gave you the, I gave you the quick scores at the beginning, but I'm just going to give you a little recap here. In the nightcap, Hugh Casey pitched a gem for the Dodgers. He only allowed. One unearned run in nine innings, and he scattered eight hits. And the Dodgers were up 6-zip after three, and they cruised to the 6-1 final. In the first game, in the eighth inning with the Dodgers up 2-1, to one, Babe Phelps commits two errors, allowing four unearned runs to cross the plate as the Reds win 5-2. Bucky Walters got the win for the Reds, and he went the distance, as Luke Hamlin was a hard-knocks loser for the Dodgers. Here's a stunning fact. The total time of the two games combined was three hours and 17 minutes. I just have to say, how is that for the base of play? On August 27th, 1946, this is a subject that has always been near to my heart. I've, I actually built uh, a replica of Ebbets Field that, that I named Little Ebbets Field. And I built it in honor of Jackie Robinson because of the stories that my dad would tell me. Uh, he was always telling me baseball stories, and he was one of the Not hole gang uh, guys for the uh, Boston Braves, but he would just—he would tell these great stories, and he would light up so much when he would talk about Jackie Robinson. Of course, uh, living and growing up in Boston and watching the Red Sox, uh, as you know the Red Sox history, uh, they did not have a lot of players like Jackie Robinson. As uh, a matter of fact, that was the polar opposite of the type of players that they had, so he would... Be enamored by Robinson's talent. This event, uh, like like I said, it goes a little near to my heart, and it was something that uh, as I was looking for events on uh, August twenty seventh, it just shows you the mindset back then was more that led to a decision than you than you think. Going back to August twenty seventh, nineteen forty six, at an owners meeting, a committee formed to study integration, which includes Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey, delivers its secretive report defending the covert colored barrier which exists in professional baseball. The absurd reasons were given why blacks shouldn't be allowed to play in the big leagues included an absence of skills due to inferior training and lack of fundamentals as well as the need to respect existing Negro league contracts. Another lesser known motivation may have been the profit. As revealed later in the report, the Negro leagues rent their parks in many cities from clubs in organized baseball, and club owners in the major leagues are reluctant to give up revenues amounting to hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, and the fear white fans would be driven away if black players attracted more minorities to the ballpark. The Red Sox became the last club to integrate, despite the wealth of a talent available to sign. And just a side note, Jackie Robinson himself actually tried out for the Red Sox, and Joe Cronin and Tom Yawkey didn't even show up for the tryout. So he could have been a Red Sox, and who knows what their history would have been like if they had signed him instead of the Dodgers. But as it was, the club ultimately waited for Pumpsy Green and Earl Wilson, who signed in 1953 to work their way through their farm system. Pumpsy Green would debut for the Boston Red Sox 12 years after Jackie Robinson's rookie season with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and two and a half years after Robinson's retirement. Robinson would later call Yawkey one of the most bigoted guys in baseball. The Red Sox inaction in this area cost them dearly on the field, as so many black stars entered the game in this period, and the taint of their delay haunted them for decades after. They went to the World Series in 1946, integration happens, and they don't return to the World Series until 1967, it took 31 years for them to get back to the World Series, and basically In the 1950s, they were a decent team in the early 50s, but they were an awful team for a long time during this period where if they had gone a different direction, they could have had a much, much different history. On August 28, 1945, a moment in time in American history takes place as Brooklyn Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey held his famous three-hour meeting with Jackie Robinson. During the meeting... Ricky attempted to incite the 26 year old future Hall of Famer, which he succeeded in doing, although only verbally. Ricky asked Robinson if he could face the racial tension he would receive from fans and other players without taking the bait and reacting angrily, a concern given Robinson's prior run ins with the law while attending Pasadena City College and while in the military. Robinson angrily replied, Are you looking for a Negro who is afraid to fight back? To which Ricky uttered the famous words that he needed a Negro player with guts enough not to fight back and someone who could turn the other cheek to racial antagonism. Robinson assured Ricky that he could do so and the Dodgers general manager agreed to sign him to a $600 a month contract which would be the equivalent of $7,860 today. Ricky insisted that Robinson tell no one of the agreement until a formal contract was signed, scheduled for November 1, 1945. But the signing actually took place a week earlier on October 25th, and a public announcement was made the same day. And history was changed forever. On August 29, 1980, the St. Louis Cardinals promote manager Whitey Herzog to become the general manager, replacing John Claiborne, who was fired on August 18th. Red Schoendice will serve as the interim field manager, but on October 24th, the Cardinals will announce that Herzog will return as manager in 1981 while retaining his GM duties. It turned out to be one of his best moves in his GM tenure. Herzog Will lead st louis to four first place finishes and although the 1981 first place finish doesn't really show up as a first place finish because they split it in two they actually had the best overall record in his other three first place finishes he brought the cardinals to the world series in 82 85 and 87 they won the world series in 1982 against the milwaukee brewers in a thrilling seven game series And they kind of got a bum call in the 1985 World Series, but we're not going to get into that right now. Herzog's style of play based on strategy of attrition was nicknamed Whitey Ball, and it concentrated on pitching, speed, and defense to win games rather than on home runs. Playing on a much different AstroTurf than we are used to seeing today featured a very fast service unpredictable bounces in stadiums that didn't benefit from home run hitters. So an interesting thing about Herzog, well, while he was at the helm, the Cardinal faithful actually had faith. Except for the 1981 strike-shortened year, they never drew less than 2 million fans, from 1982 to 1990. And the Cardinals had not drawn 2 million fans since the 1968 season, which was their last World Series. That has to say something about how they felt about Herzog being the manager. He will retire from managing at age 58 with 1,281 victories. He had spent over 40 years as a player, coach, and manager. And Herzog will be elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2010. On August 30th, 1995, Tiger teammates Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell tie an American League record by playing their 1,914th game together, a 10-7 loss to the White Sox. The record was initially set by Kansas City's George Brett and Frank White. The Tiger Twins will finish with 1,918 games played together. But the intertwining of their career is absolutely astonishing. They were called up on the same exact day, September 9th, 1977. They made their debuts in the same game. It was Game 2 of a doubleheader against the Red Sox. They both got their first career hits off Red Sox starter Reggie Cleveland. And even though they retired in separate years, in 1995, Whitaker retired, and in 96, Trammell retired, they both got their last career hits off the same pitcher, Mike Fetters, the Milwaukee Brewers. It's totally astonishing. Matter of fact, hits-wise, they ended up two hits apart in their entire career. Trammell finished with 2,365, and Whitaker 2,367. And it just goes to show you even the smartest guys get it wrong because Sparky Anderson, when he took over managing the Tigers, he called them lightweights and didn't expect them to last long in the majors because they couldn't hit. Now, of course, Trammell was was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2018, and he actually spent half his speech talking about Whitaker. And he had said he would have rather waited longer if it meant they could have got in together. Now, for their Cooperstown journey, uh, Whitaker has not gotten the love that Trammell got. And if you look at their careers, uh, if you're somebody who's into the war statistic, wins above replacement, uh, Whitaker actually is a little bit better than Trammell because he had a 75 war to Trammell 70. And uh, except for the batting average, Whitaker's offensively was a much better player. Um, Whitaker himself ranks 13 all-time in another statistic that uh, Baseball Reference uses, which is a JAWS rating, which kind of looks at a player's overall and where they rank all-time at their position. And Trammell actually ranked higher. He ranked ninth. Um, Trammell himself played in an era where shortstops were really not offensive powerhouses, which makes uh, Trammell's offense seem like so much more. Uh, If you were to watch baseball in that era, you'd know that shortstops were slick-fielding, fast, They were uh, smaller players. They weren't really players that hit a lot of home runs. And for instance, when Robin Young hit 29 home runs in 1982, at the time, I was about 15 years old. That was the most home runs I had seen a shortstop hit. Uh, that was just very unusual at the time. You know, this was just before Cal Ripken started, he made his appearance. Uh, Ripken originally came up at third, then he moved to short, and he was a big shot stop too. Then, of course, the shot stops got bigger, and we got Alex Rodriguez down the road. But Trammell, for his time, uh, had all the attributes of the slender shortstop who could feel the position. He was fast, but he also could hit a little bit. And, in fact, uh, Trammell would go on to... Very narrowly missed the 1987 MVP when he had a phenomenal offensive year. Now the ball was jumping off bats quite a bit in '87, but still he had a phenomenal offensive year. Uh, he won a World Series MVP. He had two other top MVP appara- uh, top ten MVP appearances. Uh, he had a, also had an edge over Whitaker in uh, All-Star games, Golden Gloves. And I was privileged enough to watch both of these players growing up. I never felt. From watching Lou Whitaker, I was watching the best second baseman in Major League Baseball. He was a great fielder. He was a good hitter. But I never felt like he was the, the best. And more importantly, I was lucky enough to watch both of these players growing up. Uh, I got to see a lot of them uh, growing up in Boston. At the time, the Tigers and the Red Sox played a lot of baseball against each other. I thought Whitaker was an excellent player. But I never felt like he was one of the best players in the game. I never felt like he dominated his position for multiple years. And I did feel like Alan Trammell, although he may have not been the very best shortstop, he was certainly uh, one-two shortstop-wise because he could do all the things a shortstop was supposed to do, and he could hit. Uh, So I viewed Trammell as one of the elite shortstops in the game versus Whitaker, who I viewed as an excellent player. And if Whitaker does happen to get in, I do hope they make one exception and they do put both plaques together because their careers are the most intertwined careers I've ever seen in Major League Baseball history. August 31, 1990, the Houston Astros complete one amazing trade, acquiring minor league infielder Jeff Bagwell for the, from the Boston Red Sox for pitcher Larry Anderson. The Red Sox initially offer AAA third baseman Scott Cooper to get Larry Anderson from the Astros for the stretch run, but they were rejected. Then Red Sox general manager Lou Gorman finally trades the Eastern League's MVP Jeff Bagwell for the right-handed relief pitcher. The University of Hartford standout would go on to win the National League Rookie of the Year in 1991 and he'd win the MVP in 1994 and become one of the greatest players in the Astros history. In fact, he will go on to be elected into the Hall of Fame in 2017 despite some unfounded rumors. Anderson was a key member of the Red Sox bullpen down the stretch and helped Boston capture the AL East title in 1990. Any criticism of this move by Red Sox Nation ignores the facts. And as somebody who's lived in Red Sox nation most of his life, uh, a lot of Red Sox fans do tend to ignore some of these facts, especially back in those days, because the Red Sox did have Mo Vaughn. Vaughn was a first baseman. He's going to win an MVP. Matter of fact, he's going to be a dominant player. Uh, And Vaughn will become one of the top offensive players in the Red Sox history. And had Vaughn had not gotten injured himself, he definitely had a Hall of Fame case brewing. Before his retirement, he compared to Paul Goldschmidt, who was building a Hall of Fame career, David Ortiz, who is certainly Cooperstown-bound, Fred McGriff, who should be in Cooperstown, and Jason Jami, who put up near Cooperstown numbers. All this while losing an entire year to injuries. And Vaughn, of course, never recovered, so he never got his chance to finish off his career, which very well could have been a Cooperstown career himself. On September 1, 2010, the Washington Nationals announced that Rob Dibble will no longer be employed as a TV analyst for the team games on MSAN, the network that telecasts the Washington Nationals games. The former Major League reliever as a host on Sirius XM radio show severely chastises Steven Strasburg for not pitching through pain before the rookie phenom was diagnosed with a torn elbow ligament and, of course, had Tommy John surgery. Dibble will go on to say, this is the major leagues. This is not college anymore. You're not on a scholarship. You're being paid to do the job. And guys depend on you. And I think it's unfortunate that the Nationals and the team are in a situation where this kid is now. He feels any kind of arm pain, he's going to call out. You give these guys, Dibble was saying today's players, 15 million bucks. Please, get your butt out there and play every fifth day. Dibble also drew negative attention for focusing on a group of female spectators in the Nationals crowd in early August and questioning their focus on the game, for which he would later apologize for. Dibble himself had recorded his 500th strikeout in fewer than 368 innings. That was faster than any pitcher in modern-day baseball history up to that point, a record that is currently held by Craig Kimbrell. However, if you look back in time, he was openly critical of the overuse he experienced under his manager at the time, Pete Rose, which makes his comments quite interesting. And now before I give you the answer to the trivia question, here's a word from our sponsor. What if you could own a part of history? What if you could be part of history? Whether you're 9 months old or 90. This Day in Baseball has something for you. This Day in Baseball offers unique clothing items with iconic opportunities to sponsor player pages like Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Sandy Koufax, any game, season, or ballpark in baseball history. You can join our podcast, our special videos, and much more. This Day in Baseball allows you to be a proud sponsor of history of your favorite players, places, teams, and events which allows us to fulfill the mission to bring baseball history back to life in many various forms. We provide you the chance to be part of history, and we recreate it. Want to see how? Go to thisdayinbaseball.com and click on the Patreon link in the menu bar. If you're familiar with Patreon, go to patreon.com slash thisdayinbaseball, and you can become part of baseball history today. Who was the first black player to play Major League Baseball? Now, I know a lot of people, when they think of integration, think Jackie Robinson. But in fact, it was Moses Fleetwood Walker, who actually played Major League Baseball 63 years before Jackie Robinson's first game. In 1884, Fleetwood played in 42 games for the Toledo Blue Stockings of the American Association, then considered a major league. Walker soon realized that he was a marked man. The catch had developed a primitive form of wooden shin guards to protect his legs from well-armed spikes of opposing base runners. Even his teammates attempted to hurt Walker. Pitcher Tony Mullane threw the ball in the dirt, hoping to injure him. Mullane refused to take Walker's signals, but begrudgingly admitted he was the best catcher I ever worked with. During the season, Walker was attacked by a mob of abusive fans in Louisville. When blacks were banned from the major leagues, he played for several years in the minors. An educated man, Walker attended Oberlin College in the University of Michigan, and in 1891 he stabbed a man who attacked him and he was acquitted by an all-white jury. In 1908, Walker wrote a book on race in America entitled Our Home Colony, in which he suggested that blacks could never achieve equality in America, and the best solution would be for them to return to Africa. During his last years, during his last years, Walker was an editor of newspapers and owned several movie theaters. That's it for today's show. I'm so thankful you joined me. And now I just want to add a few quick things before I sign off. Remember to check out the show notes. We have links to players, dates, videos, and more. And if you want to share your story, go on to thisdayinbaseball.com slash fan Have a great week, and I hope to see you at the ballpark.